0: Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 37. Wow. This, as always, is the un-Undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour go-for-the-throat debate show known as Undisputed. In episode 37, I will tell you, first up, why Cooper Rush... Has to be a robot. I will tell you why Patrick Beverly, who keeps firing back at me on Twitter, has no earthly idea what he's about to get into with Russell Westbrook. I'm going to answer a bunch of your great questions, probing, provocative questions. I appreciate and thank you for all of the above, but I'm going to answer them on whether I order Diet Mountain Dew when I go to restaurants, on what I consider the greatest football movie ever, on how I rank the eight cities, eight, count them, that I have lived in. And finally, on whether I would start my team with Jalen Hurts or Dak Prescott. Tough question, believe it or not. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I have never seen anything like Cooper Rush. Never, ever, ever seen anything like Cooper Rush. The national media is confounded by Cooper Rush because number one, just about everybody in the national media said, Dallas is dead when Dak got hurt near the end of that opening night stinker against Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. And number two, because in this internet age of splash and sizzle that we live in, of wow and pow and IG and TikTok, everything about Cooper Rush is so astonishingly, maddeningly ordinary. He cannot be doing what he keeps doing, but he is. He is the biggest story in the National Football League so far this season, yet the harder you look, the less you see. There's no there, there, when it comes to Cooper Rush. Media's tried to nickname him, I've tried. I tried Red Rocket early on, Super Duper Cooper. I've heard Rush Hour, no nickname sticks because there's nothing to stick to. Cooper Rush has little to no personality. He has no edge. He wears no emotions on his sleeves. There's no Tom Brady, let's go. There's no fist throwing. There's really not much at all there. There's no heartwarming backstory. There's no mission to get even, prove everybody wrong. You hear none of the above. Rush hour just doesn't work because the last thing Cooper rushes is in a rush. It's like he's playing in slow motion. It's like the game around him is moving in slow motion, while everybody within the game except Cooper Rush is playing at 110 miles an hour, completely out of control and falling all over each other, while he's the calm and the eye of the storm. I keep hearing from Cowboy Insiders, He just has such a calming effect on the football team, on the huddle, even pre-snap, calming effect. I keep hearing this team just trusts him under fire. I got it, I get it, I see it with my own two eyes. Yet my debate partner on Undisputed, Shannon Sharp, Hall of Famer, tight end keeps predicting that Cooper Rush will soon be exposed as an undrafted fraud out of central Michigan. Shannon says that as Halloween nears, the Eagles will turn Cooper Rush back into the pumpkin that he always was. He's a -A J-A-G, JAG, Bill Parcells called just another guy. Now Shannon started to call him the intern and his internship will soon end. Shannon Sharp gives Cooper Rush 5% of the credit for my Cowboys ripping off four straight wins, coming back from the 0-1 dead without Dak Prescott. Who knew? That intern, Cooper Rush, has made Shannon Sharp look silly for four straight games. Shannon and a whole lot of other people in the national media, as they had to watch Cooper Rush and the Cowboys fall completely down to 27th after that opening night debacle, 27th in the power rankings, and now they have skyrocketed to fifth. And Shannon keeps saying, it's all defense. It's all Micah Barsons, my man, 11 from heaven. Yep, I said before the season started, my team will go as far as Micah and the Marauders carry my team. But you still have to have a quarterback. Cooper Rush is fifth in the league in QBR. That's impossibly great. He has been impossibly great for all five of his starts because he's 5-0 as a starting quarterback in the National Football League. 5-0? But sure, Shannon could be right. Maybe maybe this is the night, Sunday night, the Cooper Rush does get exposed by the 5-0 big green machine, the Philadelphia Eagles. It's also possible that Dak Prescott finally convinces Jerry Jones by Sunday. He's 1,000% healthy. His thumb is completely healed. He can grip it. He can rip it. He can fire that football 1,000%. And maybe Jerry Jones finally gives in and says, "Okay, I'm paying you $100 million guaranteed. Go on back out there and earn it, young man. Maybe that happens by Sunday night. But to me, silly me, just me, throwing Dak Prescott right back into that Philly fire, after he missed five weeks, would not be fair. It would be cruel. It would be insane. Cooper Rush has set the bar too high. The Eagles have set the bar too high. I mean, my God, Cooper Rush, think about this. He's beaten last year's two Super Bowl opponents, the Bengals and the Rams, and he won at the Giants who are now four and one. I mean, to me, that's, that's pretty great. And to me, Cooper Rush has earned the right to undergo one more reality check, this time at Philly, ultimate reality check. I, for one, would forever regret it if I didn't get to see with my own two eyes what Cooper Rush could do at Eagles, Sunday night football. I think there are some members of my Dallas Cowboys sitting quietly in the locker room swallowing these thoughts and words who would regret it if Cooper Rush didn't get the opportunity He's earned to see what would happen if you throw him into the Philly fire. I've seen what happened on Sunday night football a year ago. It was Halloween night at Minnesota. Man, he looked pretty great. He threw for 325 yards. 51 seconds left. He threw a touchdown pass to Amari Cooper, no longer a cowboy, but threw a touchdown pass to Amari to beat the Vikings 20 to 16. I saw it with my own two eyes. I saw him on Monday Night Football overcome a big Saquon break loose touchdown with back to back drives to put the Cowboys back ahead, drives combined on which he completed 12 of 13 passes. Passes, he actually threw passes and completed 12 of 13 for 129 yards on back to back touchdown drives to pull them up out of a 13-to-6 hole and give them a touchdown lead at Giants Monday night football. You know, obviously, just trying to have some heart about this, the, the obvious easy way to ease Dak back into the fray would be, see what happens Sunday night, and then here come. Detroit and Chicago at home ahead of the bye. Wouldn't that be the, the safer way, the saner way, the fairer way to ease Dak back in? Sure it would, but this begs the question, what if, what if Cooper Rush beats the Eagles in Philadelphia? Would I be shocked? No. But I wasn't shocked when Cooper Rush stepped right in and beat Joe Burrow in the defending AFC champ Bengals in his first start this year. I I saw what he had done at Minnesota and then I saw what he did against Joe Burrow and then I saw what he did at the Giants. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this, but in Cooper Rush's first four starts in the National Football League, first four, he did something no quarterback in the history of the league has ever accomplished. Four straight starts to start his career with passer ratings of 90 plus. Nobody ever, ever has done that. So how can an intern a JAG, a fraud, make history? It's impossible. How can he make so many clutch throws? It's impossible. So last night it hit me. You know how Jerry Jones always says, you wouldn't believe the size of the check I would write to win another Super Bowl. There is this thing called the salary cap, but what if you operated outside of the salary cap? What if Jerry Jones paid some highest tech company, some way off radar company operating on the dark web, some billion shades of gray area company? What if Jerry Jones paid them several billion dollars to invent a robotic quarterback? with AI as in artificial intelligence, a perfect quarterback who makes perfect decisions, but without human ego or greed or easily hurt feelings. Is it possible Cooper Rush, whose play has been so unreal, simply is not a real human being, That's all I got. I'm left with that, and I'm starting to believe it because I do not believe Jerry Jones loves Dak Prescott as a player or a person. I'm gonna remind you quickly that game one, 2019, they beat the Giants at Jerry World. Jerry told the gathered media post-game press conference that he always gives, only owner who's ever done that, He said that a new deal with Dak Prescott that night was eminent, which I translated to mean they had agreed on the big things, see money, and just needed to hammer out a few of the little things. But after Dak had three big games against three bad teams to open the 2019 season, Dak and his new agent jerked the contractual rug right out from under a giddy Jerry Jones. I'm pretty sure they went back on the verbal deal they had made with Jerry Jones. And reportedly, Jerry Jones was furious about this. And trust me, I know Jerry Jones. Spent hundreds of hours around Jerry Jones in researching the three books that I wrote about the Dallas Cowboys. You cross Jerry Jones in a negotiation, or double cross him in said negotiation, he will never ever quite get over it. He might say he forgives, but he will not forget. And when Jerry finally got backed into a corner and he finally threw up his hands, if not just threw up period, because he didn't have a better option than Dak Prescott. He paid Dak, paid him big time, paid him top of the quarterback market money. And then he sat right there the next day at the press conference, and he told Dak Prescott to his face, I overpaid you. And he did. Has Dak made Jerry eat those words? Has he become far more valuable than the contract that he signed? Unfortunately, you know and I know, no. Little known facts about Dak Prescott. Last 12 starts, he's 6-6. Six and six. Last 36 starts, dating back to the first game after those three big games against three bad teams to open 2019 season. If we go right back to that moment, game number four on, that's 36 starts. He's 18-18 and 18 is Dak Prescott. 18 and 18, Cooper Rush is 5 and 0. That's why I'm now convinced Cooper Rush is Jerry's robotic answer to Dak Prescott. Cooper Rush doesn't have 12 national TV commercials to live up to like Dak. Cooper Rush doesn't have an obscene contract to live up to like Dak. Cooper Rush isn't threatened by Micah Parsons becoming America's team's most popular new player, the hottest new commodity, the new face of the franchise. Dak is threatened by Micah Parsons. Cooper Rush has become this inexplicable cipher devoid of personality traits or quarterback flaws or quarterback foibles or quarterback tells or any obvious weakness. He doesn't have a huge arm until he needs to put a little extra on it, and there it is. He doesn't appear to be very mobile until he needs to be. see quarterback rollouts, escapes from the pocket rolling hard right, and touchdown passes to Noah Brown and Michael Gallup. Looks like he can move to me. Seriously, the the Cowboys haven't really protected Cooper Rush very well, but again and again, stood tall in the pocket, delivered an accurate pass, as a free rusher hits him right in the mouth. I've seen it again and again and again. So, fearless poise in the pocket, check. Mental, physical toughness, check. Accuracy? Deadly accuracy. Check. Velocity? Yeah, check. clutchiness. us? Double check. Is he throwing any interceptions this year? No. Lost any fumbles? He did put it on the ground a couple of times the other day. They recovered. He's on a magic carpet ride. Check. This without great protection with a rookie left tackle with who knows a left guard with an under talented center without a consistent rushing attack? It comes, it goes, without a great receiving core. Shannon Sharp blasted my receiver core because he's not a fan of CD Lamb. He calls him CD Dam. Not a fan. No Michael Gallup for a while. Now no know Dalton Schultz, who just seems to have drifted into obscurity. He's franchise tagged. Dalton Schultz got no connection with Cooper Rush. He doesn't even use the tight end. Never seen anything like this before. So I, I keep asking, what's not to like about Cooper Rush? And, and Shannon Sharp has no answer. He changes the subject live on Undisputed. Just watch. What exactly, Aya Shannon, are Cooper Rush's weaknesses? No answer. What does your eye test tell you? That he can play. Quarterback is the hardest position to play in all of sports. The NFL eats its young when it comes to quarterback. Inexperienced quarterbacks come unglued. They unravel, they go haywire. They take physical and psychological beatings before they finally learn to sink or swim. Which is it? It takes a while. Peyton Manning led the league in interceptions his first year. It happens because it's hard. But from Cooper Rush's first start, last year in Minneapolis, he's looked like a 10-year veteran. Okay, he has been in their system for six years. He is 28. He has played a whole lot of preseason football, actually the second most over his time in the league, but real live game experience? No, not until Minnesota last Halloween. And he still hasn't turned back into a pumpkin. This cannot be happening to a human being. Cooper Rush has to have been created in a laboratory Jerry Jones has finally beaten the system by having the perfect quarterback designed and built. What are Cooper Rush's initials? C-R, championship robot. Cooper Rush doesn't care how many passes he throws. Dak sure does. Cooper Rush has no reputation to uphold. Dak sure does. Have you ever seen Cooper Rush check out of a run play to throw the football? I have not, not a single time. I've seen him constantly kill, 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 check out of a pass play to a run play, but never the other way around. And yet that run game has been spotty at best. It's incredible what's happening right before your very eyes. All Cooper Rush cares about is doing exactly what's necessary on offense to win the football game. No more, no less. I I get it. The defense is carrying the day. But I said that, I first guessed it, going in. But the NFL, in the end, is a quarterback's game. It belongs to the starting quarterback. You cannot win without a quarterback, unless you're the 85 Bears or Shannon's 2000 Baltimore Ravens or the 2002 Bucks led by my dear friend, Derek Brooks. The Cowboys rank third in points allowed this year. They're very good, but they're not all-time great. Yeah, I still have queasy little questions about the cornerbacks and the safeties. They still move Micah away from Rush and the passer to linebacker way too much for my taste, dilute his impact. But Cooper Rush just keeps doing exactly what's required. What absolutely has to get done, he gets done every single time. I'm not making any of this up. I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly actually what happened against Cincinnati. He threw for 235. Only one touchdown, no interceptions. But what what happened with 57 seconds left? It was like Brady in that first Super Bowl against the St. Louis Rams, John Madden up in the booth saying, you got to shut it down for overtime, play for overtime. Nope. Here came Cooper Rush in only his second NFL start. He hits CD for eight. He hits Noah Brown, who was nowhere man. With Dak Prescott, he hits Noah for 12. He hits CD for 10. And all of a sudden, they got a walk-off field goal. Clutch, clutch, more clutch. At New York, Saquon broke loose for that touchdown. All of a sudden, it's 13-6. to And here he comes. The answer man is what I call a Cooper Rush. He answers 75 yards and 9 plays, 89 yards and 11 plays. And all of a sudden, it's 20-13. to Dallas, He answered. Washington goes ahead 7-6 to six at Jerry World. I know it's just Washington, but Cooper Rush immediately answered 75 yards and 15 plays. He converts a third and eight from the Dallas 35 with a 15-yarder to Michael Gallup, and then third and six from the nine-yard line. These are big plays and tight game. He hit that rollout pass to Gallup for nine yards and a touchdown. All of a sudden, it's 12-7, to 7, Dallas, and they don't look back. And then came the Rams game. And all of a sudden, the national media, led by Shannon Sharp, said, aha, see, I told you so. He's a fraud. He's an interloper. He's an intern. He's a jag. See, he only threw for 102 yards. And my answer is, what was necessary? Sack fumble, scoop and score, block punt, easy field goal. All of a sudden, it's nine to nothing Dallas. What did he need to do? He only threw 16 passes in the game, completed 10 with two huge drops on big third down plays by CD Lamb and Michael Gallup. Huge drops. 12 to 16 for 140 might look a little better, right? Did he turn the ball? He did not turn the ball over one time. Did he make a big throw down the boundary, the right sideline to Michael Gallup, 27 yards, a thing of beauty, dropping it right down the chimp? Yes, he did do that. But I loved it because the Cowboys won handily, mostly because of their defense in part because Tony Pollard finally broke loose, broke four tackles, scored from 56 yards away. I I get all that. But the Cowboys were five of 15 on third down, that should have been seven of 15. Trust me, that's extraordinary. That will work. That's how you win football games. Yet this for me was another camouflage game because all of a sudden the national media said, Ha, we got you. He's done. He's exposed. The national media is now once again sleeping on Cooper Rush as if they're sleeping in one of Dak Prescott's sleep number beds. I love this. Never seen anything like this as a lifelong diehard Cowboy fan. Dak Prescott has worn me out. I have tried so hard to love him and he will not let me. He has blindsided me with mediocrity. He has left me dazed and confused so many times. Do you remember Dak on opening night? 14 of 29 for 134, a QBR of 19.5, that scale of 0 to 100. That's pathetic. He scored three points and lost 19 to 3 before he went out late with the busted thumb. Look, this is all I know for sure. Cooper Rush obviously, clearly, blatantly gives my Dallas Cowboys a better chance to win at Philadelphia than Dak Prescott could or will. Something very weird is going on here, some kind of mystical mojo. I I do believe that Cooper Rush has AI as in artificial intelligence. Cooper Rush might just be the best AI in Philly since AI is in Allen Iverson. But please, please, please don't tell anybody I told you any of this. Please don't breathe a single word of what I just told you. Let them sleep in their sleep number beds. It's Cooper Hush. 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 hush About Rush.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire... Million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Bayless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Time for a question from you from Darius from LA. Do you order diet Mountain Dew when you go to restaurants? Funny question, Darius, but no, I do not. Even though I do call Dew, my diet Dew, the breakfast of champions, the nectar of the gods, I limit myself to just one Dew per day, just for the caffeine jolt. And frankly, just because I'm sorry, forgive me, sue me. I love the taste of diet do. It's my one vice. Do I think it's great for me? Obviously not. Would I recommend you drink 10 a day? No, I would not. But as my wife Ernestine always says to me and about me, I am a creature of habit. Every morning at 4.15, I'm sitting in my dressing room right here on the Fox lot, on the phone with our undisputed producer, Tyler Korn, putting the show together. At precisely 4.15, I open up a lean body protein shake with 40 grams of protein. I I used to do Metrex RTD51s, as I've said before, but they're getting harder and harder to find and I don't know why. So it's lean body, 40 grams. And I do eat one cinnamon raisin or blueberry bagel. Remember, I I just ran for an hour on the treadmill. I need some carbs and I love bagels. Just one a day, about 4.30 a.m. When I finish my shake and my bagel, I unscrew the top of one 20 ounce bottle of Diet Dew. No cans for me. Doesn't have the same taste. And when I finish, I am rocket fueled for undisputed. Now back to Darius and his question about restaurants. Occasionally, when Ernestine and I do go out to a restaurant for lunch or dinner, occasionally the waiter or the wait person will bring me a glass of Diet Dew is a beautiful, highly appreciated gesture. Yet, I do with that glass of dew what Ernestine and I do when we're honored with a, a dessert on the house. I just take one sip of it as I take one bite of dessert because we do not eat dessert. Just one sip and one bite and just one dew per day. Quick question. Ubaldo from Oakland asks, has your Super Bowl prediction changed after the first five weeks of the season? Nope. Tampa Bay over Cincinnati. It's a long season. They call me never flip skip for a reason. I will hang tough. And another question from the audience, from Jackson, from Dallas, Texas. What is the greatest football movie of all time? That's a great question. But Jackson, you're, you're probably asking the wrong guy, the worst guy you could ask this question to I, I generally just don't love sports movies because they get so maudlin, so sappy, so predictable, so fairy-tale-ish, so cartoonish. I'm sorry, but I prefer the real-life sports drama I get to watch unfold live on my TV on a nightly basis. I don't need sports movies especially football movies, because I love me some National Football League. It routinely provides me the realest, real thing. I've told you, podcast past, I I don't need Win in Time, the HBO series about the 80s Showtime Lakers, because I, I was there. I covered it. I lived through it, I absorbed it from the inside out. I just don't need it. It doesn't get me anywhere. I I don't look forward to it because I know it better than they are showing me. When it comes to, let's say, baseball movies, great baseball, there's so many, but my favorite, which is way off radar, weird as it probably gets, dismiss me if you will, but I did love eight men out because it's a hardcore look inside the Black Sox scandal of 1919 when members of the White Sox took payoffs to throw the World Series. It it, it is supremely acted led by John, uh, excuse me, John Cusack as the, the real life third baseman Buck Weaver. So I've I've watched all the most beloved football movies. I know them all. I know them as well as you do. I know The Blindside and The Longest Yard and certainly remember The Titans. I, I know The Waterboy. I know Jerry Maguire. Certainly We Are Marshall. Do I ever know Brian's song? I know Rudy, obviously. I know Invincible. I know Friday Night Lights. They're all well. They're all good. But they're just not quite real enough, and raw enough for my taste. I will tell you that my my second favorite all-time football movie is on any given Sunday, in large part because Jamie Foxx is just so convincing as the third-string quarterback who gets a shot, Willie Beeman. Jamie Foxx, oh, he just took that role over and also because a dear friend of mine who once played for the Dallas Cowboys, Pat Toomey, also a Vanderbilt graduate, wrote a book that became the basis for the Oliver Stone script any given Sunday. But here we go once again. Al Pacino ruins it for me with the way, way, way over the top portrayal of the coach of the Miami Sharks. It's just not real. You lost me there, which brings me to my favorite football movie of all time, back to Jackson's question, Jackson from Dallas. My favorite is North Dallas 40. It's a thinly veiled fictional look at the 1960s Dallas Cowboys based on a novel written with talent and brains and guts by Pete Gent who is a receiver for those teams. A man I've interviewed, a man I remain fascinated with, former basketball player from Michigan State who got the unholy hell beaten out of him, catching passes from and running the streets with the great Don Meredith, Dandy Don of Monday Night Football fame. Nick Nolte plays gent and nails it. Mac Davis, shocked me, plays Meredith and nails it. G.D. Spradlin plays the cold, calculating Tom Landry, and I absolutely bought it. The dialogue is so real, the situations, the conflicts are so real. The recreational drugs, the painkillers, the injuries, those players were forced to play with that today's players are not forced to play with the big D idolatry of the 60s, the women, the parties. It was all so real. The ending is not sappy. It's not happy. Trust me, I wrote three books on the Cowboys, as I've mentioned, starting with one called God's Coach about the rise and fall of Tom Landry's Dallas Cowboys. I know Cowboys history. North Dallas 40 is legit. So speaking of Dallas, it just occurred to me on the fly that after I scripted out an answer to the next question, I actually left Dallas off the list. So I'm going to have to on the fly put Dallas back on the list to answer Jordy's question. Jordy from Columbus, Ohio. I like Columbus, Ohio. I've been there several times. Can you power rank all the cities you've lived in? It's a good question. So number one on my list, by far and away, is the city I'm living in as we speak, the the city I'm speaking from as we speak, Los Angeles, California. I had lived here for three years soon after college, and when I left to become the lead columnist for the Dallas Morning News, I said, if I ever get the chance to go back to LA, I am going and here I am. My wife, Ernestine, born and raised in New York, seems to come in on a daily basis in the afternoon from being outside and she says to me, man, it's a beautiful day. And I say, duh, another day in paradise. It's warm days, it's cool nights, it's that Hollywood energy and creativity and vitality. It's celebrities to your left and your right. It's the mountains, it's the beaches. Give me La La Land. Number two on my list is San Francisco. I did live there for three years. San Francisco proper, just the city of, is my favorite place in this country, heck in the world, to visit. And yet, man, the weather there rivals L.A. If you live down the peninsula or across the bay into the East Bay, it's right there with L.A.'s weather. The the scenery, as you probably know, is just absolutely breathtaking. The Golden Gate Bridge, the cable cars, Napa, I could go on and on and on. I, I don't need to sing the praises of San Francisco or the Bay Area because they speak for themselves. I lived there for three years and I could live there again. Number three on my list is Miami. Yep, you bet, it gets sweaty, hot, and humid. You do have to deal with the cockroaches. But listen, that Miami vibe, That South Beach electricity. I miss it. I could live in Miami again. I'm going to wedge in here at number four, Dallas, Texas. Lived there a good number of years. I think about 17 years. I liked Dallas, but I can't say I loved it. I grew up in Oklahoma City, which considers itself a smaller Dallas but I had some great relationships in Dallas I had some great times in Dallas and yet it's a good place to live but you wouldn't want to visit there there's no real real action in Dallas and in the end Dallas was hard for me and hard on me The weather's good, not great. I haven't been back much since I left, which is really all you need to know. Now that brings me to number five on my list, which is New York City. It's a great place to visit, but my point of view, you wouldn't want to live there. I did for 10 years. Ernestine, who grew up there, made it tolerable for me. We had some great times there, but it was more having times with her than with it. Broadway plays are great. Great delis, great bagels, great pizza, great walking town, lousy weather. And I gotta tell you, living there just wore me out. Number seven on my list, is my hometown of oklahoma city i did grow up there my closest friends live there i survived my childhood there i got out of there somehow some thank you god way and i can't wait to go back there every summer can't wait oklahoma city underrated golf mecca Number seven on my list, if I'm counting correctly, is a tie between Nashville, Tennessee, where I went to Vanderbilt and Bristol, Connecticut, to which I commuted for the 10 years, really 12 years that I lived in New York. Nashville, Tennessee, the truth be told, when I was at Vanderbilt, I barely saw Nashville. I I didn't go to the Grand Ole Opry. I didn't go to Printer's Alley. I did nothing but study and work to survive at Vanderbilt as a public school kid thrown in with all those private school whizzes. When I think back of my time in Nashville in college, I think of pulling all nighters and sweating midterms and finals and writing on deadline for the school newspaper. That's all I can really think of. I did go back fairly recently to visit be enshrined, as it were, in the Media Hall of Fame. And I'm pretty sure Nashville today is about 10 times the city it was in the days that I was there, which brings me to Bristol, Connecticut. It's a great place to raise a family, great place. Southington, West Hartford, great places, pretty good golf courses. But all I did was work. I lived for 10 years, kept the same room, 365 days and nights a year at the Residence Inn. It's actually in Southington, but it's on the border of Bristol, Connecticut. There's only one restaurant to go to on that beaten path. Only one restaurant called Kava. I miss Kava, But all I did was work and I love my work. And Ernestine actually loved coming to visit on some weekends, me up in Bristol, Connecticut. We just hung out at the Residence Inn I had TV, we watched cable. And that brings me to the last city on my list, Chicago, Illinois. It is the single best sports town in America, but I definitely wouldn't want to live there. I'm not anxious to visit there. I did live there for three years, lived downtown at State in Huron. As you know, covering the 98 Bulls, highlight of my career, getting to know Michael Jordan. Highlight, covering Sammy Sosa versus Mark McGuire in the great home run race, summer of 98, was top five, highlight of my career. But it just gets too cold and windy in Chicago. And the summer lasts, uh, what, maybe a couple of weeks in Chicago? And the traffic is the worst in the country in Chicago. If you grew up in Chicago, it's virtually impossible to ever leave permanently Chicago. Everybody wants to go back who's from there. But if you didn't grow up in Chicago, it is not hard at all to leave Chicago, and I did. Allow me to go deep into Patrick Beverly versus Russell Westbrook and how it will impact one LeBron James. On October 6th, I tweeted, Russell Westbrook, parentheses, who isn't playing, close parentheses, is sitting in street clothes about halfway down the Lakers bench. LeBron, AD, and Pat Bev, parentheses, who aren't playing, close parentheses, are sitting together in street clothes at the far end of the bench says it all. Pat Bev fired back at me on Twitter. No, it doesn't say it all. No, it doesn't, said Pat Bev. Stop searching, skip, sheesh. And just for the record, back on September 6th, I tweeted, Pat Bev will do everything in his professional power to make it work with Russ. But, despite the show Westbrook put on today, as Pat Bev was introduced to the media, he will once again be Pat Bev's worst enemy if Pat Bev starts taking Russ's minutes. Russ is about Russ, not winning. A day later, September 7th, Pat Bev responded to me, on Twitter, no, Skip, I have a good feeling about this. Praying hands emoji. You're going to need a lot of prayer here, Pat Bev. Dear Pat Bev, you know that I know that you know that I know that you know Russell Westbrook will not be your new best friend, will not blend in beautifully with you and LeBron, AD that he ultimately will be an unfittable fit for your new team the Los Angeles Lakers now please understand I am the biggest Pat Bev fan I I thought he was the perfect pickup for a LeBron team that of course went 33 and 49 last year and missed the play-in tournament That Lakers team lost its swagger. It became lifeless. It became deadheaded on defense especially. Just rolled over and played dead way too much of the time. Pat Bev will bring some new edge, some tenacity, some attitude, some fearless, instigating trash talk that this team sorely missed last year. Plus, I got to tell you, Pat Bev, for all his barking, he's got some bite. I just think he's a good basketball player. Not a great one, but a good one. High IQ playmaker, pretty good three-point shooter, pretty clutch from distance. So here's the truth. Right now, Patrick Beverley is a more valuable basketball player than Russell Westbrook. I'm going to say it again. Right now, Patrick Beverley is a more valuable basketball player than Russell Westbrook is right now. The main reason Pat Bev is such a sweet little pickup is because he can play a lot of the minutes that were wasted on Russell Westbrook last season. Obviously, Russell led the NBA in turnovers per game until the last three when he sat. Trey Young passed him. Obviously, Russell Westbrook or Brick finished dead last in three-point shooting, fourth worst in free throw shooting. Russell Westbrook was a nightmare of a disaster of a liability who became untradeable because he was so remarkably bad and he's scheduled to make 47 more million dollars this season. Russ also burned his bridge with LeBron and AD by blasting both of them in his exit interview at the end of last season. This after LeBron and AD campaigned for the Lakers to acquire Russell Westbrook, campaigned mistakenly. Biggest swing and miss of LeBron's career. Russell Westbrook is a sorry teammate because he's a one-man team, a solo act of a stat machine who's obsessed with starring, not winning. Triple-double waiting to happen, and who cares? Doesn't get you anywhere but often beaten. Man, I am shocked LeBron could not see through that. As he he actually recruited Russell Westbrook, how could you not know, LeBron? So disappointed in you, high IQ that you are. And predictably, Russell Westbrook got exposed on the very stage he dreamed of inhabiting as a kid in the LA area, big Laker fan. And then he began to blame everybody but himself. I took my share of that blame from Russ and from his wife. Pat Bev has no real idea what's about to hit him right between the eyes, what he's about to be right in the middle of. Hell hath no fury like a West Brick exposed. Of course, you know all this. Russ, Pat Bev had years and years of, coagulating, strangulating bad blood. But understand, please understand this about Pat Bev. All of his taunting and irritating and instigating and tormenting, they're all part of his professional repertoire, part of his toolbox. It is not personal with Pat. It's just a big part of of how Pat Bev made it out of the west side of Chicago and made it through pro leagues in Ukraine and Russia and Greece. Made it to and then made a name for himself in the National Basketball Association. I honor that. I'm in awe of what Pat Bev has created in part because of his instigating and tormenting and discombobulating of opponents. Yeah, he, he does live in a gray area occasionally. I, I don't like it that he shoved down Chris Paul after Chris Paul had shot the Clippers right in the heart in that Game 6 closeout game at Staples a couple of years back. And Pat Bebb did try to snake the ball from Westbrook as he had it under his arm trying to call timeout. Unwritten rule, leave him alone, leave it be. And that contact tore cartilage in Russ's knee cost him the rest of those playoffs, required two surgeries because the tear was so deep and so bad, and who knows, maybe it took a year or two off the end of Russ's career. Russ will never, ever get over that, and I cannot blame him. So the bad blood, it's obviously boiled over repeatedly between these two only because Pat Bev has instigated, he has antagonized and tried to distract Russ, get him off his game, I think he's been successful on many occasions. That's what he does. It's who he is. Then suddenly, impossibly, those two wind up teammates on the Los Angeles Lakers only in Hollywood. And of course, Pat Bev, ever the consummate pro, immediately declared, Russ has become his best new friend on the team. They work out together. They enjoy being on the floor at the same time. Blah, 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 blah. Tries to sell Patrick Beverly. I I sincerely believe that Pat Bev believes that he is bonding with Russ. Because Pat Bev is all about doing whatever it takes for the team to win. He is the opposite of Draymond Green, for whom I have little to no respect. Pat Bev is never going to attack a teammate. Everything in Pat Bev's repertoire is aimed at opponents. It's the classic cliche of you want him on your team, you love him on your team, but you hate him if he's a rival. There is no way that Pat Bev, as Draymond did, would call a teammate a bitch. Draymond called Kevin Durant a bitch. For that matter, Draymond called LeBron a bitch during a finals game, then tried to kick him in the midsection as he's tried to kick others in the midsection and got tossed for game five that changed history in the 2016 finals. Now, reportedly, Draymond has called Jordan Poole a bitch. That's a word for me. I I just can't come back from that one. You call me that, man-to-man, eye-to-eye, bridge is burned. Them is fighting words, or at least that word is a fighting word for me. Pat Bev is not going to call a teammate a bitch. He's not going to slug a teammate during practice. He's only going to try to irritate and distract opponents. But he's firing back at me on Twitter because he genuinely wants this to work with Russ, and it will not. Remember what happened at Summer League, that game in Las Vegas? Russ shows up, sits on the bench in street clothes, is coaching all the young players on the floor and during timeout huddles, and there, LeBron shows up down at the end of the floor and is holding court, the king in his court. I think it's up to Russ to mosey down pay his respects, just say hi to LeBron. Nope, nothing. Cold-blooded. Russ wants no part of LeBron. And then the other night, as I tweeted, the new big 3, LeBron, AD, Russ. I'm sorry, LeBron AD and and Pat Bev sitting street clothes at the end of the bench. Russ is sitting in the middle of the bench. And really that's how it should look because I think Pat Bev is the newest member of the new big three. Pat Bev belonged with LeBron and AD at the end of the bench. Russ is at quiet war with this team. Russ has ostracized himself from this team. Russ does not wanna sit with LeBron or AD. I advocated through the whole offseason, just pay him and send him home, addition by subtraction. Jeannie Buss is not going to do that. She's not gonna swallow her pride and swallow 47 million. Her father would not have done that and she won't either. So the whole goal of the offseason to me became reducing Russ's minutes and his negative impact on the team. So they added Patrick Beverly. Great. Dennis Schroeder. Great. Kendrick Nunn is finally healthy. Great. Austin Reeves. High IQ. Higher and higher minutes. I think LeBron loves playing with him and around him and off him. Okay. Reduce Russ's minutes. As the season wears on, Russ isn't going to be wearing street clothes on the bench. He's going to be wearing his uniform on the bench as he sits and watches the team play. Pat Dev will be playing more and more of Russ's minutes, deeper and deeper into games. No or nah, Pat. Ain't going to work. Pretty soon, Pat. you're going to have to use one new word as a response to your disintegrating relationship with Russell Westbrook, and that word is sheesh. Last question. Marlon from Tampa, Florida asks, would you rather start your franchise with Jalen Hurts or Dak Prescott at quarterback? Man, got to think about that. Right now, I would lean slightly, but only slightly, to Dak, just because Dak is still a little better thrower of the football than Jalen is, though Jalen has improved markedly and dramatically. But I got to tell you, Jalen Hurts has stronger intangibles than Dak. Better leader, gamer, baller, playmaker. Heartbeat of those Eagles in ways Dak has never been the heartbeat of my Cowboys. I will not be surprised if Jalen Hurts eventually surpasses Dak in overall value. Incredibly, I have so much respect for Jalen Hurts that he's starting to mix my emotions as a cowboy fan. I'm finding it hard to hate the Eagles. I grew up hating the Eagles in their Santa Claus booing, Santa Claus pelting fans. I despise everything about that franchise and have for many, many years. I didn't hate Washington when I was growing up. I didn't hate the Giants within the NFC East. I respected the Giants as a cornerstone franchise in the NFL. I just hated the Eagles. And it all started when my mom and dad, for some reason, attended an Eagles preseason game that was played. I grew up in Oklahoma City, but it was played at the University of Oklahoma, Owen Field. I was seven years old. My mom was so proud of herself. She brought me back this cheap eagles pennant a pennant she tacked it up on my wall because she was so proud of it and i despised it but i was i didn't want to shame her by ripping it off the wall but i could barely stomach looking at it what an ugly puky shade of green that was but this sunday night jalen hurts will be wearing eagles green Man, you are so lucky to have Jalen Hurts. You sorry Eagles fans. That is it for episode 37. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 930 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show every week.